All right, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thankful for the opportunity to pray together, and now thankful for the opportunity to open up the Word of God together. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. This morning we'll be in Luke 4, verses 31 to 44. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. You should know that we are in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke. It's our habit here at Free Money Free to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. The reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And so lately we've been in the Gospel of Luke. Our, our hope in this series is that we would fall more in love with who Jesus is as we discover more about what he did and the type of person he was. So let me pray, and then we're going to get to it here in Luke 4. God, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to open your word together, to study, and to reflect on who Jesus is. And certainly it is our prayer that as we open your word, even this morning, that we would fall more in love with him. That is the goal. As a church, our goal is that we would bring praise and glory and honor to you because we love you. And so we just pray that we would be able to see today the goodness that is present in Jesus, his power, his authority, that we would fall more in love with him, that when we leave here today, we would leave as worshipers. Obviously, there's, there's always going to be distractions. There's always going to be things that could take away our attention from you. But our heart and our prayer this morning is that you would help us to focus rightly on you and to see you as good. So Lord, please be with us now as we turn our attention to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you were to compile a list of the most powerful people in the world today, who would you put at the top of the list? Maybe it would be some like Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, founder of SpaceX, who also happens to be the richest or at least one of the richest people in the world. Or maybe it would be a political figure. The President of the United States, Joe Biden, or Vladimir Putin, the President of Russia, or Xi Jinping, President of China and General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Or maybe you would put someone like Taylor Swift, who's perhaps the most famous person in the world today. I mean, think about this. Is it really a coincidence that the year Taylor Swift starts cheering for the Kansas City Chiefs, they make yet another Super Bowl? I'm just saying. Depending upon who you ask or what list you consult or how you define the word power, you'll likely get a lot of different answers to the question, who is the most powerful person in the world today? But generally speaking, whatever list you consult, you'll find the same types of people on the list. The rich, the famous, the politically connected. In the world we live in, when we think of those who have power, we think of those who have money and connections and fame and positions of influence. And without question, those who have money and connections and fame and positions of influence do possess a certain amount of power. I mean, put it this way, if Joe Biden makes a decision as president, it affects a lot of people. If Elon Musk acquires a new business, people take notice. If Taylor Swift says anything, we hear about it. And make no mistake about it, the Joe Bidens and Elon Musk and Taylor Swift of the world know they possess great power. When they walk in a room, the dynamic in the room changes. If they want something, they probably almost always get it. And if they tell someone to do something, most likely they do it. If you possess money and fame and political connections, when you tell someone to jump, the typical response is, how high? There's a certain power that comes with wealth and fame and positions of influence that is undeniable. But here's the thing. The power possessed by the Elon Musk and Joe Bidens and Taylor Swifts of the world is temporary. In the end, we'd have to say it's not all that impressive because there's nothing particularly unique about their power. Think about this. If the world still exists 100 years from now because Christ has not yet returned, someone in the year 2124 will probably compile a list of the most powerful people in the world then. And will not have on that list Elon Musk or Joe Biden or Taylor Swift because all of them will be gone. But instead, it will be filled with people just like them. People who are rich and famous and politically powerful. 
which begs the question, if your power is fleeting and there's nothing particularly unique about your, powerful, about your power, are you actually that powerful? Listen, I'm sure that when Elon Musk wakes up in the morning, he thinks of himself as a pretty big deal. And I have no doubt there are certain political leaders who think the world revolves around them and certain celebrities who think their opinions are far more valuable than others. But let's be honest, most of the people that we might say are the most powerful today will in the end become nothing more than a blip on the radar of history, if that. What we tend to label as powerful is perhaps not as powerful as it seems. Most powerful people don't actually possess as much power as they think they do. And they certainly don't possess much power that's all that unique in the scope of history. And understanding that is actually part of what makes our passage today so compelling. As Jesus' public ministry kicks into full gear, we quickly realize that Jesus has a power and an authority that is utterly unique and completely unmatched in the scope of history. Simply put, there is no one that possesses power like he does. Listen, I'm not trying to crush those of you who are Swifties this morning, but the Taylor Swifts, and for that matter, the Elon Musk and Joe Bynes of the world are a dime a dozen. Now, I'm not saying that they're not unique in their own way. They bring something unique to the table. That's true. But what I am saying is that the type of power that's possessed by the Elon Musk and Taylor Swift of the world is the type of power and influence that many others have possessed throughout history. But as we're about to see in our passage today, Jesus' power was completely and utterly unique. There's no one like him. And so this morning, let's turn our attention to the powerful and authoritative Jesus Christ. If you would, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. And in Luke 4, verse 31 to 44, we are going to see the power of Jesus Christ on full display. The words will be on the screen or if you want to follow in that way. You can follow in your own Bibles or you can listen as I read. But the Word of God says this, beginning in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid on his hands every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this very purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. It's the word of God, you may be seated. So again, here's the main takeaway this morning. Jesus is uniquely authoritative and powerful, and there is no one else like him. And Luke helps us understand this reality in a variety of different ways in this passage. It begins with Luke's introductory comments in verses 31 and 32. So again, look at the way the passage starts in the first two verses. Verse 31, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. 
So from the very beginning of our passage today, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus possesses an authority that is unique. His authority is obvious in the miraculous things that he does, which we'll get to here in just a second, but it's also obvious even in the way that he teaches. As Luke tells us in verse 32, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So it wasn't just what Jesus did that demonstrated his great power, it was also the way that he spoke. Even his words had a certain authority to them. At the time, most religious leaders of the day would often appeal to tradition, or they would quote other religious leaders in order to try to make their case. But Jesus seemed to speak with an authority that was all his own. He did not need to quote other authorities. He did not need to appeal to tradition because he himself was the authority. And this is something the crowd seemed to sense. They recognized Jesus had an authority in his speaking that was just unique. He just spoke in a way that was different than anyone else spoke. He was uniquely authoritative. And that unique authority is seen in what follows, verses 31 and 32. In verses 33 through 41, Luke recounts three miraculous stories that each demonstrate the authority of Jesus in a unique way. I think it's worth diving into each of those three miracle stories so that we can understand the type of authority that Jesus possesses. So let's look at the first miracle story in verses 33 through 37. We see this starting in verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You have, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So in verses 33 to 37, then, we find the first of 21 miracle stories in the Gospel of Luke. And perhaps it's fitting, given his earlier encounter encounter with Satan in the wilderness, that Jesus' first miracle that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke is one in which he fights off the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, having said that, though, in terms of our reception of this story, the problem with this particular miracle is that we're probably not as impressed with this miracle as we should be. As commentator Daryl Bach points out, we have a tendency to downplay stories like the one that we find in verses 33 to 37. And we have a tendency to downplay the story for a couple of reasons. First of all, as as Bach points out, in the Western world, we tend to be skeptical of stories involving demons or unclean spirits or spiritual forces of darkness. We just assume that what we can see with our eyes is all that there is. Whereas other people around the globe or throughout history have readily affirmed the reality of spiritual forces of darkness, we tend to be cynical and dismissive of stories like this. For many people in our culture today, when they hear something like what they do in verses 33 to 37, they just dismiss it as a fairy tale or maybe something that Luke made up to try to make a point. But to be absolutely clear here, Luke and the other gospel writers do not tell these stories as if they're a fairy tale or as if they're made up to make a point. When Luke writes what he does, it's clear that he intends to record history. This really happened. Jesus really drove out demons. But again, because of our skepticism regarding the spiritual world, we tend to downplay a story like this one. But as Bach points out, there's a second reason we tend to downplay stories like this one also. And the second reason is that we tend to downplay stories like this because we've heard these stories so many times that we become familiar to the point that they seem kind of boring to us. We think, well, of course Jesus cast out demons. That's just what he does. Nothing to see here. Move along. 
But do you realize how significant Jesus' actions are right here in verses 33 to 37? Do you realize how much power he's displaying in this story? I won't go into a lot of detail because I don't want to unnecessarily distract from what we're learning about here in the Gospel of Luke. But when I was a pastor in New York, we had a situation in which it certainly seemed like there was a girl in our congregation who was battling against some type of spiritual force of darkness. And I'll just say this. It was a sobering experience for all of us involved. At no point did I think to myself, oh, this is kind of fun and easy to deal with. On the contrary, it was unnerving and more than just a tad overwhelming. We didn't know what to do. Now, we prayed, and that did seem to help the situation, but we didn't leave that day thinking, oh, we fixed everything. That was so easy. And perhaps it's because of that experience that I no longer take for granted what we read in passages like we read here in Luke 4. In Luke 4, we're told that the demon immediately recognizes Jesus, the Holy One of God. But when Jesus rebukes the demon, be silent and come out of him, the demon immediately obeys. Think about this. Whereas the demon was in complete control of the person, Jesus speaks a word and the demon immediately has to obey Jesus. Now, lest you think this is normal and no big deal, the crowd's response clues us in that this is not your average, every deal, every day, run-of-the-mill event. Look again at verse 36, or listen to verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So the crowds are amazed. They ask the question, what is this word? Who speaks like this? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. In that response, you can hear their astonishment, their wonder. But you can also hear even maybe a little bit of fear too. Who is this person who possesses this type of authority? Who is this person who can drive out demons with a word? No doubt the first miracle story in this section of scripture, and for that matter, the first miracle story in the Gospel of Luke, demonstrates the unique authority of Jesus Christ. But so does the second miracle story that we find in verses 38 and 39. Verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. That would be Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. I think there are a couple of things that are noteworthy here about this account of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Again, that's who we're talking about when we're talking about Simon. The first thing that's worth noting here is that Jesus again uses a word to accomplish his miraculous task. We're told in verse 39 that Jesus stands over Peter's mother-in-law and simply rebukes the fever, and then the fever leaves her. Needless to say, I don't know anyone who possesses this type of power. When Tanya is sick or the kids are sick, I can't just walk into the room and stand over Tanya or stand over one of my kids and rebuke the fever. Fever, leave. And then it does that. It doesn't work that way. I don't possess that type of power. But Jesus does. He has a unique authority here. Now, as we'll see in the book of Acts, on occasion, he might grant that authority to his followers so that they can bring healing to others. But that's rare. And even when that happens, it's his authority alone that's being granted. So one thing that sticks out here in the account of Peter's mother-in-law being healed is that Jesus simply rebukes the fever with a word. Now the second thing that sticks out, though, is her response. Look again at what happens in verse 39. And he stood over and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now if you've ever been really sick, the end of verse 39 should strike you as odd. Immediately she gets up and begins serving if you've been sick before, you know that's not normal. 
Because even when you start to feel better, it takes a while before you get your energy back. When Tony and I lived in Texas, we once got a bug that was as bad as anything I've ever had in terms of sickness. Now, I'll spare you a lot of the details here, but suffice to say, we were fighting a battle on two fronts, if you catch my drift. And sometimes we were fighting that battle at the same time. In terms of sickness, it was by far the most miserable I have ever felt in my entire life. And even after we started feeling better, it was probably at least another week before we finally felt like we were back to normal. And that was back when we were younger and our bodies recovered quicker. I would hate to see what that would do to us. Now it would probably take us a month to recover. I say all that to say this. We're told in verse 38 that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a high fever. In other words, Luke is cluing us in. She's not just kind of sick. She is really sick. But when Jesus rebukes the fever, she immediately gets up and begins serving. This tells us something about the nature of Jesus' healing. It's thorough. It's complete. It's lacking in nothing. When he heals, he heals completely. Jesus does not have partial authority over demons and over sickness. He has full power. He's completely and fully authoritative over both the spiritual forces of darkness and over human sickness. And we see that reality on display in the third and final miracle story of this passage, which is found in verses 40 and 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Whereas the first two miracle stories in verses 33 and 37 and verses 38 and 39 focus on a specific individual, this third miracle count is much broader in nature. Jesus is described as healing any who are sick with various diseases. All who came to him were told, He laid his hands on them and healed them. He also drove out many demons. So in verses 40 and 41, you see a widespread ministry of Jesus in which he's ministering to multiple individuals and in the process demonstrating the authority again over disease and demons. And he's doing so in a powerful way. And in all that, we're simply reminded that no one has an authority like Jesus does. It's no wonder then that in verse 42, the crowds begin flocking to him. They're flocking to him because they've heard the stories of what he's doing. They've heard what he's doing in Capernaum and they don't want him to leave. But Jesus, for his part, recognizes that he has others to minister to. So the passage concludes in verses 43 and 44 with Jesus departing from Capernaum because he knew that he must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns. Because as Jesus himself says it at the end of verse 43, he was sent for this very purpose, to preach the good news of the kingdom. Nevertheless, while he may be on his way out of town at the end of the passage, I think it's worth us reflecting on Jesus' actions in Capernaum. Simply put, we'd have to say that his showing in Capernaum was spectacular. In Capernaum, he demonstrates his heart for people. I mean, think about the variety of people that he heals here, that he ministers to. He drives out the demon that is taking control of a man. He heals a woman. He ministers to the crowds. And all that, we're reminded that he has a care for people from all different backgrounds. But we also see that Jesus demonstrates his unique authority here. He casts out demons, he rebukes fevers, he heals the sick, and he teaches in a way that is utterly distinct also. And again, in all of this, we're simply reminded Jesus is uniquely authoritative and powerful, and there is no one else like him. Again, I think the danger for us is we're so familiar with stories like the ones we find in Luke 4 that we may take his power and authority for granted. But know this, and hear it clearly this morning, there is no one else on the planet like him. There's no one who has power and authority like Jesus. 
Now, having said that, I think the question for us then is how do we respond to this authority? What do we do with this Jesus that we see in Luke chapter 4? Now, in this passage, I think there are actually a couple of different responses that we see to Jesus' authority, and quite frankly, neither one of them is necessarily great. I want you to notice first the response of the demons. But verse 33 and 34, and verse 41, the demons respond to Jesus and his authority. Look first at verses 33 and 34. Verse 33, and in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 41, we see something similar. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. So in both verse 34 and verse 41, the demons seem to rightly identify who Jesus is. In verse 34, the demon cries out, cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that's a correct identification of Jesus, but clearly the demon has no interest in trusting Jesus or following him. The demon actually wants nothing to do with Jesus. The cry of verse 34 then is not a cry of faith, Instead, it's just an admission of reality. Jesus is the Holy One. We see the same type of thing happening in verse 41. When the demons cry out, you are the Son of God, and when they acknowledge that he is the Christ, that is not a cry of worship or a cry of joyful submission. Instead, it's again a begrudging admission of reality. That Jesus is the Son of God, but the demons want nothing to do with him. And in that, I think we're reminded that it's entirely possible to rightly identify who Jesus is while completely rejecting his reign and rule in our lives. Or as James would so famously say in James chapter 2, even the demons believe there's a God and shudder. But as James makes clear in the context of that passage, they're not living for the king. They don't joyfully submit to the reign and rule of Christ. They don't see him as good. In the response of the demons then, we're reminded that merely identifying Jesus correctly is not the same as following him and trusting in him for salvation. If you can recite the basic facts of who Jesus is and what he's done, that's a good start. But it's not the same as actually following him. It's not the same as joyfully living for the kingdom of God. And in that way, I would say this. The demon's response in this passage serves as a bit of a cautionary tale for us. Being a Christian is not just about rightly identifying who Jesus is. Rather, it's about seeing Jesus as the great treasure and the treasure worth living for. And the demon's response reminds us of that reality. But it's not just the response of the demons in this passage that serves as a bit of a warning. As I mentioned earlier, I think there are a couple of different responses that we see to Jesus in this passage. And actually, the other response that we see is a cautionary tale as well, and that's the response of the crowds. Now, notice the way the crowds initially respond to Jesus in this passage. Let's just make our way through the passage here, starting in verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So in verse 32, they responded to Jesus with astonishment. Verse 36, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So they respond with amazement. Verse 37, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So they respond by, by sharing about Jesus with others or sharing the good news of what he's doing. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So here we see them responding by coming to Jesus. Then verse 42, we read this. 
And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. So here we see that they are now trying to keep Jesus around. They're trying to make sure that he stays. So throughout our passage, we'd have to say the crowds in Capernaum, they seem to be captivated by Jesus' authority. Unlike the crowds in Nazareth, if you'll remember from last week, they don't try to throw Jesus off a cliff. Instead, they try to keep him around. And so you'd have to say, okay, well, the response of the crowds in Capernaum, it's a good response, right? Well, maybe not, because there's something that happens later on in the Gospel of Luke that clues us in that maybe there's more going on than we know in Capernaum, right? So if you have your Bible, just turn ahead five chapters, Luke chapter 10. So just five chapters to the right, because I think this is really important what happens in Luke 10. All right, so Luke 10, verses 13 to 15. Verse 15 is going to be our focus here, but I want to read verses 13 to 15 just to get the background. So this is Jesus talking in Luke 10, verses 13 to 15. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now in Luke 10, Jesus is pronouncing woe on cities who have seen his mighty works, and yet they've failed to repent and come to him in saving faith. In one of the cities, and this is crucial in light of what we're reading in Luke 4, which takes place in Capernaum, one of the cities that he rebukes in Luke 10 is Capernaum. So apparently, Jesus made a pretty good first impression. That would be obvious given the passage we're reading today. But maybe that impression didn't last. Well, I'm sure there are some in the city who sincerely believed in Christ and from that point forward followed him. It would appear that maybe the vast majority in Capernaum were initially impressed by Jesus and impressed by what he could do, but they didn't actually believe in him. They didn't actually live for him. They took note of his authority, in other words, but they did not treasure him as a person. And again, in that, I think we have a warning for us. It's one thing to be impressed by Jesus and to take note of what he can do. It's an entirely different thing to see Jesus as the treasure worth following. It's an entirely different thing to recognize his reign and rule and joyfully follow him. Because I think there are many in the church today who are attracted by the benefits that Jesus can provide. Forgiveness of sins, peace with God, eternal life. But they don't actually love Jesus. They don't actually want to follow Jesus and obey his commands. They don't actually see Jesus as the great treasure, and they don't think they actually need to be rescued from their sin by Jesus. But as the people of Capernaum would warn us, that too is a dangerous place to be. Listen, we don't worship Jesus because of the benefits he provides. We worship him because of who he is. He's the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. There's a vast difference between merely identifying his benefits that he provides as opposed to seeing him as good and loving him. On a not-too-all-infrequent basis, we have people stop by the church looking for help with money or gas. And when that happens, one of us always tries to take the opportunity to talk about spiritual things and point that person to the hope that's found in Jesus. And so over the years, I've had many, many spiritual conversations with random strangers who just stopped by the church. And I'm always amazed in those conversations how many people acknowledge who Jesus is and what he's done. They'll freely admit that they know Jesus is the Son of God, and they know Jesus died on the cross for sins. But then in many cases, it's pretty clear from the rest of the conversation, they don't actually want to follow Jesus. They don't want to submit to his reign and rule. They don't see him as the great treasure. In other words, they want his benefits. They don't want him. But as we're reminded here in Luke 4 and subsequently then in Luke 10, it doesn't really work that way. 
To be a follower of Christ is not merely to acknowledge who he is, as the demons do. It is not merely to appreciate his benefits, as the crowds at Capernaum do. Now, don't get me wrong, being a follower of Christ means we understand who he is, and it means that we're thankful for his benefits. But ultimately, to be a follower of Christ is to love Jesus. It's to see him as the great treasure in the field worth selling everything for. For the first 18 years of my life, I knew who Jesus was. I knew he was the Son of God. I knew he was God. I knew he was one who proclaimed to be Savior. And I was thankful for that. And I was appreciative of what Jesus could do. I, I was taught growing up that Jesus could heal the sick and the lame, that he could walk on water, he could feed thousands. I was thankful that he'd gone to the cross. Those were all good things. But I didn't recognize who Jesus was, or at least I didn't embrace who he was. And I didn't recognize my own sin and my need to turn to him to be saved. Unfortunately, if, uh, if I were to assess my life the first 18 years, I'd have to say I was a lot like the demons in the crowds in Luke 4. I had an understanding of who Jesus was, an appreciation for what he could do, but I didn't love him. I didn't see him as worthy of being followed, and I didn't see myself as needing to be rescued. It wasn't until the fall of 1999 that I finally understood Christianity wasn't just about acknowledging who Jesus is. It wasn't just about appreciating what he could do. It's about rightly recognizing his authority and then running to him for salvation and following him because he's worthy. So let me just say this. In a group this size, I'm sure there are some today who've fallen in the same trap that I did in the first 18 years of my life. Maybe you're a kid and you're here today or a young adult. Maybe you're a teenager and you've grown up going to a church, maybe this church, but you've never actually turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. Or maybe you're an adult and you've heard a lot about Jesus over the years. You know that Jesus is the right answer to the question. But you've never actually come to the point where you've decided, I'm a sinner and I need rescued and Jesus is worth following. If that's you, if you fall into either one of those categories this morning, again, just want you to know we're glad you're here. But let the demons and the crowds in Luke 4 remind you, following Jesus is not just about correctly identifying who Jesus is. It's not just about seeing his benefits. It's about recognizing your sin and turning from your sin and trusting in Christ for saving faith. It's about then following him because you love him. About seeing him as the treasure because he is the treasure. In Luke chapter 4, we're reminded that there is no one like Jesus. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over the demons. He has authority even in the way that he speaks. And the rest of the Bible will make clear that actually here in Luke 4, we're only seeing a fraction of his authority. In Colossians chapter 1, we're told that all things were created by him and through him, and that in him all things hold together. In Luke 24, Jesus raises from the dead, demonstrating his authority over death. As Acts 2.24 so famously puts it, it was not possible for death to hold him. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. In Matthew 28, Jesus boldly claims that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. In other words, what we're saying is this, what we see in Luke 4 is only a small taste of the bigger picture. Jesus doesn't just have authority over disease and demons. He has authority over creation. He has authority over death. He has authority over everything. There is no one like him. There are many people on this earth right now who seem like they have great power. The Elon Musk, the Joe Bidens, the Taylor Swifts of the world. But understand this, their power is nothing compared to the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke the world into existence. He drives out demons by the sound of his voice. He rebukes fevers and he conquered death. 
Quite simply, then, Jesus is uniquely authoritative and powerful in a way that no one else is. But here's the other important thing that we learn in Luke chapter 4. Jesus' authority is not just meant to be acknowledged or admired as if Jesus is a celebrity along the lines of Elon Musk or Taylor Swift. No, he is to be worshipped. He is to be treasured. He is to be followed. So church, here's my prayer for us this morning. My prayer is that we would see Jesus rightly, that we would understand that he possesses an authority that is utterly unique. But in light of that authority, my prayer is that we would run to him, that we would see him not just as the authoritative king, but as the loving savior who laid down his life so that we might live. Church, my plea then is this, to recognize the authority of Jesus, yes, but more importantly, embrace who Jesus is. He is the authoritative king, that's true, but he's also the loving Savior. He's worthy of our admiration, no doubt, but he's even more so worthy of our worship. So church, let's not just admire Jesus today. Let's just not rightly recognize who he is. More importantly, let's follow him because he is worthy of being followed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word today and to be reminded who Jesus is. He's uniquely authoritative and powerful. There is no one like him. And God, I pray that we would see who Jesus is in this passage. Father, I pray that we would see that and we would not just admire Jesus and not just rightly identify who he is, but we would with all of our hearts recognize that we are sinners and we need a Savior. And that we would then follow Jesus with joy. Because we recognize there is nowhere else to go to find life. And there is nowhere else to go to find satisfaction in this world other than following him. So it would help us, in light of this passage, to not just see Jesus as an authoritative figure, but to see him as a great savior. And to live for him the rest of our days. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Our benediction today is going to come from Revelation chapter 1. You can stand as we turn here to Revelation 1. While you're standing, just going to remind you of one quick announcement here. It is the second Sunday of the month. On the second Sunday of each month, we do take up a benevolent offering. That's actually a basket that's located on the foyer. Our basket's here in the sanctuary for normal giving. But on the second Sunday of the month, we have a benevolent offering. This is for people in our church who are just struggling financially or, or in some way they're in some sort of financial bind. We love to be able to help them in these circumstances. So if you're wanting to give, that basket is out there. If you're needing help, please let us know. It would be our joy to help. All right, our benediction today does come from the book of Revelation, chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.